Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Jesus is here. Uh, I haven't seen him yet, but uh, just worshiping with you together, uh, knowing that uh, no one forced us to come and no government could stop us. Um, we can celebrate that freedom. With that in mind, I want to remind you that uh, March 6th, uh, Miriam and Marzia, the two girls from Iran who were imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ, a government that wants to shut down all religious freedom, uh, we, uh, we're going to be hosting them again right here Friday night, March 6th, and I hope you'll come, bring a friend. It is my belief... And the reason you see me traveling or championing uh, different aspects of the persecuted church is the way we grow and the way we uh, become stronger as Christians is not by rocking in a hammock, uh, drinking Dr. Pepper to the rapture. Uh, The way we grow stronger is being around adversity. And one of the ways we can be strengthened is to see the church uh, that is persecuted. And and what can we learn? How can we pray? Uh, Because they have so much to teach us. We often think that we are the resourced church, that we have so much to give the world. Uh, But sometimes Jesus might say to us, you're blind, wretched, poor, and naked, uh, because we don't know what we're missing, you see. And uh, I think the whole church needs each other worldwide. Different parts of it have something to give to other parts. And so uh, that's why we're bringing back uh, these two young ladies who were imprisoned for their faith in one of the darkest prisons on the planet. And they came out alive and they come, uh, come out strong, write a book about it, testifying about it, and, uh, and have very strong opinions about the totalitarian government of Iran and uh, love you. They, they came to this church, and it was one of the most beautiful experiences for them to experience you. And so if you can come March 6th, that would be great. One of the reminders, last week I gave you a little coach's talk, a little pump-you-up talk, and some of you missed it, and it was amazing. Uh, so let me just remind you what I said, only in a shorter version. Uh, there's three priorities in the Christian life. God us and them. (laughs) Uh, God, you know, I need to remind myself every day to ignite my soul because I'm a porous person. You're a porous person. It's a lie in a secular culture that I self-start myself and uh, I'm not affected by anything around us. All social science studies show that we are porous people. We're very affected by our culture, environment, and so forth. So I need to fill the sponge with God, with who he thinks I am what he's done for this world to save us from our sin. And so my time in prayer and my time in the word, however short or however some of it spills onto the freeway to get to work, is vital. So I want to encourage you to build discipline in your life. Don't be a flabby Christian. Uh, Be a disciplined Christian that meets somewhere with God every day whether it's night or in the morning or in the middle of the day. Secondly, be a we Christian. 
it is a lie that we don't need each other. It is a lie that you can be Hans Solo, Davy Crockett, or Daniel Boone, or John Wayne as a Christian. Uh, we can't do it alone. We need each other. It was never meant to be a solo sport. It's a team sport. So uh, in a church this size, we encourage you to become known in a, in a smaller setting. We teach and we worship here, and it's phenomenal. The worship is amazing, but uh, where, can, where can I meet? And sometimes it's once a week, sometimes it's once a month, sometimes it's around an activity, sometimes it's just a Bible study. Whatever, whatever flavor suits you, we have literally hundreds of small groups around the city uh, that, that you could be a part of. And if none of them fit you, start your own. And the second part of the we is... Um, uh, become a responsible member of the body. Uh, in our family, we always had the responsibility for our sons, uh, which was make your bed, do the dishes, and show up for meals. And I said, well, I don't want to. And I said, well, then move out. <laughs> because uh, you're, if you're behaving like a single person that isn't a part of this family, then Sorry, that's such a bad illustration. I really didn't do that, but I'm just... <laughs> I could feel the whole audience turn against me. I love your boys! I just... <laughs> but, but the idea is become a responsible member. And part of that is not only coming, but giving. You know, uh, no one coerces you or free to, to do whatever, but to believe passionately in sharing the love of Christ with others uh, and that we try to do so well. And then finally, uh, is just that, invite. And part of that is going out, and part of that is inviting in. Uh, but there's somebody that wants to know about the love of Jesus that you have discovered. And that, that keeps us strong as Christians, as we wait for paradise, which is what we're going to study today. I want to pray, and part of this prayer is going to be modeled for you one of the prayers that you can pray every day as a Christian. Uh, Jesus invented it. It's called the Lord's Prayer, and uh, so would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that you love us, and, and we honor you. We praise you for who you are. It's our prayer, Lord, that you would have your will in our lives today every single person here that your will would be done we pray that you would provide for us that you give each of us our daily bread be it uh, relational needs uh, be it physical healing be it economic needs God that you would provide for us and God we're sinners saved by grace Forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us. And make us a merciful, forgiving people. Not a judgmental, religious people. But a forgiving people. And keep us from temptation. And deliver us from any stronghold of evil that wants to take us down. And now, Lord, speak to us through your word, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. We are in Genesis chapter 2. And I have to tell you, I mean, I know how long I take to prepare a message. And usually it's somewhere between 15 and 20 hours. 
And um, this week has been 40 hours, not because I have to, but because I love this passage of Scripture. We are peering through a telescope back to the beginning of time, uh, of the beginning of the first couple uh, when they were in the garden. So the passage doesn't tell us everything we wish we could know. In that sense, the telescope is a bit hazy. Uh, You know, it's going to tell us about some fruits. It doesn't tell us exactly which fruits. It doesn't tell us the exact climate. It doesn't tell us the exact elevation. It doesn't tell us the exact location of the Garden of Eden. But it gives us a lot of data. And most importantly, it gives us the data that we're supposed to know. As we lay this foundation. So Genesis 1 through 3 is the foundation for our faith. If you missed last week, um, I usually don't say this because I'm not impressed with me, but it was a darn good sermon. <laughs> and, and I would encourage you for your own faith to go back and, and watch it or listen to it, either podcast or online, because it's significant for the foundation of your faith, just like next week will be. But today, we are in Genesis 2, and uh, the way I want to get into Genesis 2 is going to date me, and I apologize for that, but there was a song written by Joni Mitchell called Woodstock, and it was made famous by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. She was not at Woodstock. She was watching it on TV because her manager told her it would be a waste of time to go there. And so she's watching it on TV, and her boyfriend, uh, uh, Graham Nash, who was in the group, comes back and tells her about it. She writes about this day, but she intermingles a couple of things that have to do with paradise, because every human being has this longing. Oftentimes we call it the God-shaped void, but what I want to point out to you, it's not just the God-shaped void. It's the qualities and the things that God creates that we have the longing for. It's bigger than just God. It's, we have the longing for paradise. We have the longing for the way God meant us to live and the experience he meant us to have. So Joni Mitchell pens these words, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Can't you hear Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young singing that? Some of you are looking at me, who are they? You know, it's just, uh, at least I'm not quoting from Bing Crosby, you know? <laughs> A different Crosby. So, what we're going to explore is the idea of dignity, the idea of intimacy, the idea of extreme freedom. Some of you have never thought of paradise being a place of extreme freedom. Uh, we're going to discover the usness that is described in paradise and the place where there is no shame. So now let's begin in verse 4 because that's where the chapter division should have been. Uh, The creation narrative in chapter 1 goes all the way through verse 3 of chapter 2, and then another beginning happens. 
And I call this little section, Kiss by God, because what the passage is pointing us to is the extreme intimacy that God intended to have with us. So it reads like this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, hev- the earth and the heavens. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared. I, I can't smile, help but smile every time I hear the word shrub. Uh, it's something from Monty Python that is still in my mind about shrubbery. And no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now we come to the gem of this section. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. There's a few details here that I want to point out to you that are not going to save you, but I find them interesting. And so I'll just point them out to you. One is the phrase, this is the account of. The interesting thing about this is this phrase is repeated, I don't know, seven or eight times throughout the book of Genesis, and they are the proper chapter demarcations Remember, the chapters and verses were invented uh, years later. And so you would read a book like Genesis without any chapters or verses, not knowing where the divisions were. But the writer tips you off. And when I say the writer, you're saying, who is, isn't God the writer? Well, God is the inspirer, the writer in that sense. But when God gave any of the books of the Bible, he didn't form his lips on the ceiling and start speaking, and we're just taking down the dictator. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, okay. You know, could you repeat that again? You know, it, it was always through a person. And so you have all these books that have different flavors, different nuances. It gives us hope that God uses us as we are, that I don't have to be you and you don't have to be me for God's spirit to work through me. So I, I think it's probably Moses, but Moses never puts his name at the front of it, so I usually say the writer, the author, uh, but that gives you the sense of what uh, I think. And so he uses this phrase, this is the account of, and actually it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times throughout the book to start a new section. The second thing, even more interesting, is the title Lord God. The Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is throughout the Old Testament. It's the personal name of God that God gave to Israel. This is who you will call me. Uh, Just like you use the name Jesus, Um, Jesus used this name when he was speaking uh, in his ministry. He said, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name of Yahweh. That's, that's how he defined himself, which means I not will be or not was, I am present to work in your life right now. And that's what Yahweh means. It's a contraction of the word to be. So that name is used coupled with the name for God, Elohim. 
which is a complex name for God rather than just El. And you say, wow, this is, what is this supposed to mean? Listen, so if Yahweh is his personal name, it's tipping you off that he wants a personal relationship with you. If God is his title, it's tipping you off that he's, he's not one of many gods. He is the only God. He is creator big. He's big, 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 big God. And those two thoughts come together. Why is that important? Because I know a lot of people that just have Jesus as their groovy little buddy. Hey, Jesus, come on. We're going to the store today. Hop in. Cool. That's it. And, but sometimes when they come up against things that they ought not to do or that they should do, they don't take their command from Jesus because Jesus is not their Lord. He's their buddy. Right? He's God. So we have the relationship, but he's, he's big. He, he is commander-in-chief. Other people have only the commander-in-chief. <laughs> they have no personal relationship. With commander-in-chief is the judge, and the judge never takes off his robe when he comes home. <laughs> he continues to judge us all the time. Judge, 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 judge. And that's a hard God to be around, that he's, he's never relational. He's never personal. But you and I have this Lord God. This title is used 20 times in chapters 2 and 3 and then not used the rest of Genesis. Only chapters 2 and 3. And in the entire first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, it's only used one other time in Exodus, and that's it. So this is significant that we're discovering him as God but he's also in relationship to us. Those are the only two things I have time to point out. Uh, we're going to move on. There's a little bit uh, of, of issue with the, the fact that there were no plants yet, no shrubbery. And uh, it, it seems to be a little bit different order than you find in Genesis chapter 1. It's, it's one more of logic than it, the other being one more of of. Uh, chronology and artistry, but that, I don't think that's germane to our understanding here today. Um, the high point of this paragraph is found when God breathes into the first man. And by the way, the word man in Hebrew is Adam, Adam. So sometimes it's translated Adam and sometimes it's translated just the man, right? Now you know why. They're trying, the translator has to figure out in the context how it should be translated. But God breathes into this man, and it, and it feels so warm. It feels so personable that God would have this face-to-face -face encounter. Everything else, he just let there be and there was. He creates and does his thing, but there's something about you there's something about me that he wants to be up close and personal. And it's scary and it's wonderful. All in one. But if you and I are to find out what we were created for, it's connected to the guy that breathes on you. It's connected to that. A person that's an equestrian person came up to me last night 
And she said to me, do you know that every time a foal, is that like a baby horse? I, 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 I was told that a colt is a male foal, and, uh, and, and foal is, could be either. So I hope that's right. I'm not a horse person. But when, one of, when her mare gives birth to a foal, the, uh, the doctor lets her know that it's happening. And she comes and she breathes her breath into the nostril of the foal, imprinting the foal with her smell. So from the very beginning, the foal will know her as part of his or her life. And I thought, whoa, that's what God does with us, right? Uh, You are imprinted by the Holy Spirit to know that you're connected to Jesus, that he is working in your life and your identity is not separate, but your identity is wrapped up with God. And here's the big kicker. I think that all spirituality, we all come from different journeys, right? I certainly traveled a long ways through philosophies and religions before I found Jesus. But all spirituality should lead to intimacy with God. My journey was, part of it included energy, May the force be with you. And that energy could be good or bad. And I could sit on a rock and absorb the energy of the universe. But there was nothing personal or interpersonal about energy. It was just, you call it God, I call it energy. And then I I thought, well, what about all these other religions that have multiple gods? And the God of this and God of that. And... and, uh, and, and just trying to find out what that was. And finally, I moved on from there uh, to thinking, well, what if there was just one God? But what if that God is, like I said earlier, just this big judge that's calling balls and strikes? And with me at bat, it's almost all, ball, all strike. You're out, you're out, you're out. And when I discovered that God through Jesus wanted to have a relationship with me, I thought, this is either crazy or I'm on drugs or it's true. And as I explored this, I realized that the God who breathed into the nostrils of the first man wanted to have that kind of intimacy with me. And out of that intimacy comes dignity. I discover who I am. And then as I read the rest of the scriptures, I I saw it over and over again. It's astounding in comparison to any other religion on the planet, the intimacy that is there. Uh, Psalm 139, a God who knows me when I lay down, when I get up, he knows my ins and outs, everything about me, And his thoughts towards me are more than the sands of the sea. Then you come into the New Testament and you see Jesus at the end of his ministry do the same thing that God did in the garden. He breathes on the disciples. (sighs) 
And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's not just the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the breath of God coming into imprinting you. Isn't that beautiful that God, I mean, that's worth the price of admission, right? You can just go home now, right? To know that God wants to be in relationship with you. Number two, freedom and responsibility. We as Americans, we pride ourselves in seemingly understanding freedom. But I dare say very few of us have read the philosophers of Europe that gave us the idea of political and religious freedom and freedom of speech and what all these things are. But what they had in mind oftentimes feels contrary to what we have in mind as modern. I feel sometimes as a society, we think freedom is just doing whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. So there. And and there's a bit of an attitude that we just, uh, we've forgotten that freedom allows us to read some books that other people were never, ever allowed to read. It allows us to go hiking into nature and discover things that no one else was allowed. It allows us to do things together that, my point is, the best of a human being is discovered through freedom. And this passage talks about freedom. I want to show you. In verse 8, we read, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. Eden is the Hebrew word for delightful. Uh, When you translate it into Greek, the word is paradise. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10, and the river watering the garden flowed from Eden, not into Eden, flowed out of Eden And it says, it then separated into four headwaters. And it names those four rivers, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. Then down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of paradise, Eden, to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free. Let me say that again. You are free. Remember, Paul says in Galatians, it is for freedom that God has set you free. This is an intoxicating freedom that God has given to us. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. There's a lot to digest there, but I'm just going to take 10 minutes to unpack it a little bit and, uh, and then leave the rest for extra credit. So first of all, this river. Where are we? What's going on here? Well, if you take the time to unpack it, you realize what the writer's describing for us here 
is a river that comes out of Eden. The only thing we can imagine is it is a spring that comes right up out of the ground and becomes a river in the Garden of Eden, out of which are formed four headwaters, the beginning of four different rivers, possibly designating north, south, east, west, possibly just designating uh, that it's four rivers. But those four flow right out of this one. So it's a bit opposite what you and I are used to. We're used to tributaries that flow gradually into one river, and we would call that the river that's going through the Garden of Eden. There's tributaries that come in, but it's not that. The elevation level must be that Eden is high enough that it now is flowing out in four different directions. Why is that important? Well, it's only important because the rest of the Bible picks up on this image. In Ezekiel, in Zechariah, and ultimately in Revelation 22, where a river flows out of God. This is God's garden, Eden. He made it. And a river flows out of it. It's life. River and water is always symbolic of life. And so life isn't coming into the garden. Life is coming out of the garden. In uh, Ezekiel and Zechariah, it describes uh, a water a river coming out of Jerusalem that flows east and west, one down to the Jordan, one down to the Mediterranean. But when you get to Revelation, the river's coming out of the throne of God. Where is this place called Eden? Nobody knows. I mean, if you go online, you'll find people that claim it's in South Africa. Others claim, it seems to be wherever people are from. They think that that's, it's, it's, some think Ethiopia. Many people have thought at the base of the Mesopotamian Valley that flows into the Persian Gulf, and they've reversed the language to say there's tributaries flowing in to the Persian Gulf, so Eden must have been right there. But to do that, they have to play with the word headwaters. It's literally there in the Hebrew. So an opposite view, if you look on the map that you're already looking at, <laughs> uh, up to the north, uh, Armenia. I'm not saying for sure that Eden was there, but it feels like it's describing somewhere around there that Eden could have been because the Tigris and the Euphrates River come out of that. It's okay. There's no shame. Grace for everyone, right? Because tomorrow it could be you. I hate it when it's me. So, but I like this idea of, of exploring this because um, another thing to point out is that when God destroyed the earth with a flood and restarted it and the ark comes to rest on Ararat, Ararat is right next to where the beginnings of Euphrates and Tigris and possibly these other rivers. We don't know where the Pishon and the Gihon were some people, the Gihon, think the Gihon is the Ganges River in India. And, uh, you know, you can just speculate. But um, it wouldn't it be interesting that when God decides to reboot 
he reboots the, the very spot that he created. Now, if you're from Armenia, if you're Armenian, you love this message. Because you are saying, but it, um, you know, it, it ranges from an altitude of 3,000 feet to 6,000 feet. But, uh, you know, when you're going to grow fruit, uh, an elevation of three or 4,000 feet is actually a very good elevation for all the different deciduous fruit trees that you're going to grow. Now, the problem I personally have with that is I'm partial to tropical. <laughs> So I would like to think that Hawaii or Tahiti or maybe that was the way paradise was. But you see, that's good for mango and papaya, but not necessarily the best for peaches or apples. Uh, I don't know. Beyond that, we would be just purely speculating, but that is fun. The big thing to note here is that God says in verse 9, And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Many of you have read The Magician's Nephew of C.S. Lewis, and and it's a picture of creation and Aslan just walking along singing. And whenever he changes the tone or the note or the speed of the song, different things start popping out of the ground. To think that God did all of this. And the amount of fruit trees were amazing. The variety was amazing. Springtime, when the blooms are coming out and the smells and the fragrance, it was amazing. And, and the first couple had their choice. What do you want to do today? Well, I don't know. I was thinking of heading over to the uh, papaya trees. And after that, we'll do a little bit of mango and after that, we'll do a little bit of apples. And how about some cherries? What are you thinking? And it says that they were free. It also says that they were responsible. Uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. For those of you that lived through the 60s, you'll remember Maynard G. Krebs. Uh, and he pronounced the word work, work, and, and he had phobia, fear of work. So many of us think that when we get to heaven, we retire. But you never retire from you. You never retire from being who you were called to be and who you were, what you were called to do. And so could it be that part of paradise is having responsibility? People that are out of work would love to work. So work is not bad as long as it's enjoyable. And so he's giving you and I responsibility, which gives us a picture of heaven. That what if for eternity we're exploring with different responsibilities that God gives us? Picture the opposite. You're just a penguin standing next to another penguin. I don't know, I just like penguins. A human penguin. And we say to one another, so what are you doing today? And the other one says, I don't know, nothing. What are you doing? I don't know, just maybe eating a couple cherries. Maybe we'll, yep, we kind of did that yesterday. Yep, we'll do it again. And, and we're going to do that for thousands and millions of years. It's like, come on. But what if 
paradise, our ultimate heaven in the presence of God is full of discovery, full of responsibility, full of new creations that we're a part of and, 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 and we got our, our sleeves rolled up. There's stuff to get done and we're pretty excited about this stuff. So that was Adam and Eve, that they were given the responsibility of taking care of the garden. Now, the trees that were in the center of the garden, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two questions I'm asked, what was it and why? The why question I find fascinating because we all think that the world would be okay if God didn't create this evil tree. We need to put God on the witness stand and say, where were you on the day that this tree was created? Why did you create this tree? We could have been wonderful people. Now, what I want to say to you is ease up a bit. All freedom has limits. Right? All freedom. You can do anything you want today, but you cannot be a hawk. You cannot be a dolphin. I'm just saying. You can't be an asteroid. Is, does that bother you? Freedom has limits. You're limited to being a human today. And we all have different gifts and traits and, and abilities that we are limited by. And so our freedom is always limited by something. And our freedom is always limited not only by physical constraints, but it's limited by social constraints. It's limited by socioeconomic constraints. I only have so much money. It's limited by moral constraints. You cannot go kill anybody. You're not free to kill. You cannot go steal. You cannot go destroy. You cannot go and be immoral. You cannot go do these things. There, there are moral constraints to us always in our freedom. Now let me ask, am I right or am I right? I'm right. It's true. God is placing a moral constraint here that's around this tree. And we don't know what this tree is. My personal belief is there was no magic in the fruit. And I don't think you should be picturing an apple because we don't know that it was an apple. Could have been a pomegranate or some other fruit that doesn't even exist today. I don't think the juice was poisonous like you ate it and, and like the uh, fairy tales of Snow White and says, <laughs> you know, where you eat the apple and you, you change. He could have said, just don't jump off a cliff because you can't fly. He could have said, don't swim across the river because you can't swim. But there's something about this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think the focus should just be on evil. Because most of us that have been raised in the church read it as the tree of evil. It doesn't say that. We X out the word good. 
It's a merism that I spoke of last week that means from A to Z. You could know knowledge from A to Z, and that becomes the temptation that we'll read about next week. You could be like God who knows everything. But there's a price to pay because there's something that we should not know about that creates shame, self-consciousness we should never know about. And we see our children gradually becoming self-conscious and self-aware and self-absorbed and, and, and comparing ourselves to other people and judged by other people in this thing called shame that we'll talk about in a moment. We were never created to know shame. Shame is knowing who you are not and living with that always. It's a knowledge that causes us as humans to cave in. So these two trees in the center of the garden are kind of like two doorways. Door number one, door number two. And you are free to eat any tree in the garden. You are free, you are free, including the tree of life. Whoa. What if they said, let's go eat the tree of life? The tree that's symbolic of living forever. It's not the tree I want. I want to push the red button. The button that God said we shouldn't touch. So big, big idea. But God says, with that limitation, you will die. So I think that paradise is a place filled with freedom. And I think it's actually the way we should live. And I think it's actually the way we should raise our children. Some people from religious backgrounds tend to be hyper-moral about everything. Uh, 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 uh. Let's not eat that ice cream. What if everybody ate ice cream whenever they want? What would the world be like? If, and, and I think we have to limit our mor moralisms. To, wouldn't everyone in the world be fat? If we went around, how would, you, how would the world get along? We'd have to increase the doorways. We'd have to change the cars just because you want to eat ice cream. Uh, some of us do that to our children. And I think we should overemphasize the freedom. What would you like to do today within these limits? We could go hiking, we can go surfing, we can, we can do this. We, really? You could write a song today. You could climb a mountain today. Really? Yeah, because that's who God is. Wouldn't it be fun to have a God who emphasized freedom, and there was only one tree in the garden that you couldn't eat. I think that's pretty healthy. But you have to come back next week to find out about that tree. The way I want to end up here this morning is where chapter 2 ends up. The wonder of revelation. Intimacy without shame. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, and I will make a helper suitable for him. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall not be called woman. I'm sorry, I jumped a couple verses for you for the sake of time. Anyway, the woman's made, and the man has this euphoric reaction. In the living Bible, it says, this is it, (laughs) as he looks at woman. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. For this reason, verse 24, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Verse 25 ends the chapter. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Interesting way to end the chapter, because you expect it to say, and it was amazing, or that was paradise. But it ends by saying, using a negative comment of something, a substance that was not in paradise, which apparently is throughout the world today, which is shame. And I want to remind you that sin is never mentioned in chapters 1 through 3, only shame. It doesn't mean that sin doesn't later appear in the Bible but it's this issue of shame. So God says in verse 18, there's one thing in the good place. Sorry, I know that's a program. I just said it. Um, That is not good. The word for good throughout Genesis chapter 1 is tov. And it was good. Tov. And it was good. Tov. The word for no or not is lo. And we come to this verse and it says, it was lo tov, meaning not good. There's something in the good place that's not good. And what is it? It's aloneness. I think he's referring to not only marital togetherness, but he's referring to social togetherness. We are social beings. We were never created to be a monk off as a hermit for 40 years of our lives without seeing anybody. It just is not native to how God made us. And he says, no bueno. It is not good. I use this a lot in wedding ceremonies. And I tell the man it was not good for you to be alone, and he's nodding, like, (laughs) you're so right, and get on with it. (laughs) So, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Oh, how the translators have struggled with this word. Somehow, out of fundamentalism, the word came to be helpmate, And that word was never in the Bible. The word mate, did you know? Some of you still use that. And some of you just say, you know, here's my little help mate. And the word was meet, not mate, M-E-E-T. It means to meet. It means to correspond to. It means to be suitable. It means to be right we, we're, we're perfect for each other. We match, match, match. That's what the word means. So the King James had it, help meet, and later translation says, that doesn't make any sense. That's not, that's not even in our vocabulary, help meet. And so it means 
a, someone who helps you with what you do because they correspond to you. It's your alter ego. It's the same as you, only opposite of you, and so you match each other. You see? I mean, you can think of the anatomy of male and female, and you say, well, that's obvious, but it's, it's, it's obvious in other ways as well. So that when the man meets his wife, he says, this is now part of me. This is, this is it. And he's been allowed to name the animals, <clears throat> which means in that culture, he's taking sovereignty over the animals. So now he's the image of God over the plants and over the animals on the earth. We're responsible to God for how we take care of this earth. And this person is the match for me. And the fact that the woman was taken out of man's rib, uh, I forget who the uh, ancient Christian writer that uh, I, I used to remember, but uh, I used to remember a lot of things, that uh, said, you know, that Eve was not taken out of man's foot, that he should rule over her, or out of his head, that she should rule over him, but out of his side, that they would be equal to each other and complement each, each other in life. Uh, Christian marriage is never, when it says they, they will become one flesh, it does not mean that one sex eclipses the other. Where one doesn't have a say and the other one gets to have their whole say and we're one because I just do whatever I want. That's why we're one. No, it doesn't mean that. It means two are better than one as Ecclesiastes says and they come together to create this oneness. Now, for those of you that are single and you're saying to me, well, how do I fit into this? Well, maybe you do fit into a marriage scenario later on in your life but still it matches all of us because I read the Bible before I was married and believed it. And it meant that I was a part of a community of male and females where we were in harmony with each other and needing to work that way. So when he meets the woman, it's like the veil is being removed. Like in the old-fashioned marriages where you put your hands under the veil, not like this, but like this, and then you pull the veil off of the bride and you see her for who she is. This is now part of me, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And it says here that the man and the woman were both naked, the last verse, verse 25, and they felt no shame. Everything in our world, we'll talk more about this next week, is built on shame. What if I told you that 39% of all your thoughts and all of your actions come out of shame? And that some of us, it's more like 79% of all we do is out of shame. Shame being, I wonder what they would think if I do this. Shame being, they might criticize me. They might judge me. What would my mother think? 
I would be embarrassed. What are we supposed to wear? I don't know what we're wearing. I don't want anyone thinking ill of me. What would that person think at my interview if I told them everything about what I think? I wouldn't get the job. I would be ashamed. What would it be like if... So the way we live now is we radar like bats. We radar. What do they think? What do they want? What do they... And I, I could go on and on to quote Princess Bride. Uh, I'm right, aren't I? What would the world be like without shame? This sticky substance that is attached to all of us and we can't get rid of it. I think children oftentimes exhibit characteristics that feel like they live in a world without shame. They don't, they don't know that they're behaving like an idiot. <laughs> and they're, they're just free. I can think of some things that my parents have told me when I, I did when I was four years old, and I'm so embarrassed that I would do those things publicly. They weren't bad, they weren't wrong, but now that I'm more sophisticated, and I care about what you think about me, I would never do those things. You see a child gradually grow and somewhere around junior high, the world caves in. They become shame-based and self-conscious and they lose the freedom. It's so sad, right? So sad to just be them. But could it be that paradise is for you to be you as God made you in the guidance of who God is but as God made you so if an alien came to planet earth and he landed here I would say I would dare say the first thing he would say at the end of the day he'd say why is everybody so weird <laughs> humans have something weird about them and I would tell you it's exactly what the writer of Genesis pinpointed it's shame. This thing came into the world. This thing. Adler, famous psychiatrist who was trained by Freud and broke away from Freud, he invented a, a word that has become a part of our society now. Most people don't know who invented it. Inferiority complex. Only he said everyone has one. And everyone out of our inferiority complex has figured out ways to behave, to counteract how we really feel inside. And so some people withdraw and they hide. And other people overcome it to say, hey, how you doing? And we do that to intimidate the other person so they don't know how we're really doing. It, it's, it's all different games we've learned as humans uh, to play. And that's even without sin. But the idea of hiding and not being authentic and real. Someone said to me, you know, we should all just be authentic and real and say whatever we're thinking. <laughs> and I say to them, how's that working for you, little buddy? It is not a safe world because of shame. 
So here's your homework as we bring this to a close. There's, there's a book that's written about this, if you're interested. It's a fantasy book by C.S. Lewis, surprise, uh, called Paralandra. It's a planet without shame. Two people live on this planet, and they're about to begin to populate it. And the devil has landed on the planet, and a human has been sent by rocket to intervene to protect this couple from repeating what we did on this planet. And the story begins. But as you meet this couple, they're, they're full of wonderful innocence and trusting and childlike uh, in, in a wonderful way. Let me close by reading to you where we will all end up. In Revelation 22.1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healings, healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and the servants will serve him there. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads, meaning their, his identity. And there will be no night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God, notice the title again, Lord God, will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. C.S. Lewis said this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is I was made for another world. Let's stand. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.